0: Hi, I'm Michelle. Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome to our podcast, Books and Beyond. So on this episode, we caught up with Sahitya Academy Yuva Puruskar winner Manu Pillai who is 29 years old and who has also written three critically acclaimed books. Wow. That's a mouthful. Like it just gives me complex Tara. Really. So we really wanted to talk to him because we wanted to find out how has he written all these amazing historical books so fast? Yeah. And like, why history? And why female characters? Like, you know, as a male writer, why did female characters appeal to him? So we really wanted to know, you know, how he manages being a full-time writer. And I really wanted to know what influences his perspective on history. So here's Manu. So hi, Manu. Welcome to our podcast, Books and Beyond. Michelle and I are really glad to have you today. Um, So for those of you who don't know, Manu is the author of three history books, The Ivory Throne, Rebel Sultans, Courtesan's Mahatma, and The Italian Brahmin. So Manu, you've written so many historical characters. So Michelle and I are wondering, who is your favorite historical character? And it doesn't have to be somebody you've written about, and it doesn't have to be Indian. But if it is, that's also cool.
1: You know, I don't think I have one favourite as such, but, you know, theres it's usually thematic. It's usually these very interesting women who've sort of fallen through these cracks, not because of any other reason, but the fact that men just haven't been looking at them. So if you look at the third book, there's a number of interesting women in that. So there's this one colourful lady called Begum Samru, who begins life as a dancing girl in Delhi, in a brothel, really. And then somewhere along the way, she meets this German mercenary who's much older than her. Uh, becomes his, not his wife officially, but sort of like a a partner. When he dies, she actually sort of edges out his son and his legitimate wife and takes over the army, commands the loyalties of the the troops, becomes this head of a large mercenary army, uh, converts to Christianity for some reason to sort of carve out her own space. Uh, She falls, has an affair with an Irishman, marries a Frenchman, nearly loses everything because her troops mutiny and tie her to a gun carriage and say, you know, we're going to leave you out in the sun to rot for a week. And she bounces back, reclaims the loyalty of her troops, goes on to become an ally of the East India Company. She's styled daughter of the Mughal emperor, pillar of the empire and so on. And she dies in 1835, one of the richest women in North India. You know, think of the the arc, you know, from a brothel to richest woman in the north. It's just remarkable.
2: Yeah, I think she's just one of the amazing female characters in the book. Like, for me, I loved Nangeli. So, like... She's just one of the you know memorable characters in the book. So it's just amazing how you bring alive these uh, you know amazing female characters.
1: So the story of Nangeli is often misunderstood because you know the broad gist that you get online, and there's this very popular comic strip sort of thing that was going around an illustrated version. Uh, All of this seems to suggest that lower caste women in Kerala were not allowed to cover their breasts and Nangili was sort of standing up to this when she refused to pay the breast tax, which was a tax you had to pay if you wanted to cover your breast, And she refused, she cuts off her breasts and dies. So this, of course, sounds very compelling and emotional and all of that, but this is not the whole truth. Uh, the thing is, nobody, no women in women in Kerala covered her breasts till the nineteen twenties. Even uh, the royal family started it in the eighteen eighties, perhaps, or the eighteen sixties. But uh, the first Brahmin woman to wear a blouse was excommunicated for indecency because wearing a blouse was considered indecent. So when Nangeli stood up and, you know, against the breast tax, she wasn't actually trying to protect her modesty or her virtue because local culture was such that your modesty didn't depend on whether or not you covered yourself above the waist. Everybody was uniformly topless. It was just the way it was. Uh, Nangeli was standing up to a caste-based tax. So basically all lower caste people had to pay a poll tax and it was called for men talakaram, which is head tax, and for women, just to distinguish them by their gender, it was called molakaram or breast tax, two different rates. She was essentially standing up to an unjust caste based tax, not for some sort of Victorianized moral, uh, this thing about covering her breasts. That was that's a later interpretation of the story. Uh, So it was interesting to sort of write this essay and try and correct that. But even now, you know, online, etc. Most people buy into the other story because for them, the very notion that women walked about topless is somehow wrong. Like it can't have been proper. But the fact is, you know, it was how everybody moved around. My own great great grandmother, etc. You know, all of them walked around uniformly topless. And someplace.
0: that's something that we never think about uh, today. Yeah, There's exactly. A,
1: there are photographs. Yeah. You know, there are photographs of these grand aristocratic families in Kerala. Group photos. You know, where you have mothers and sisters and sons and brothers. All of them uniformly topless, sitting together in a in a row. And, wow. You know, posing <laughs> for pictures. There's after the British come, they start uh, influencing this culture. So if you mm. go in southern Kerala, they start tying a thing around their torso, which is a form called Mertagatta for upper caste women. As you go further to the north, you look at paintings of the princesses of the Kochi royal family. When they appear before, say, a European painter, because of his European sensibilities, they will take a piece of cloth and simply hold it like that against their chest. They're not actually covering it. They're not, it's very loosely held. There's a very famous uh, Raja Ravi painting. If you Google it, uh, it's actually miscatalogued. It's called The Reluctant Princess. Uh, but that shows a woman in this post. She's simply holding a cloth loosely against her chest. And that's just how, you know, people were.
0: So, you know, something that's really fascinating to me and Michelle is, and it made me think about that when you're recounting all these stories, is the variety of stories that you've incorporated into all your three books and the numerous facts there are. And, and even when you're speaking all the stories that you know. So how do you uncover all these treasures and how do you do your research?
1: You know, the interesting thing is the stories are there. It's just that they don't necessarily make it to public uh, consciousness because, you know, these stories tend to languish in the seminar circuit. They tend to languish in archives and so on. And, you know, once you start digging in the right places, you're going to be surprised by the kind of stories you come up with. In my case, now I've become a full-time writer. This is what I do. I spend all my time when I'm working, going through a research cycle, which for me, the last big research cycle was 2017 to the end of 2018. It was actually 10 hours a day in the library. This is where I'm. Constantly sort of piling up uh, information. I'm not writing. I'm not doing anything else. All I'm doing is systematically culling sources and archival material for the stories. And then, you know, ideally next year I'll probably, after a gap of two years, that is, I will sit down and actually start digesting the research and writing the research into book form. So, you know, uh, the more wow. you spend yeah. time in archives, the more you start looking at wider sources. As I said, you know, we are this old-fashioned notion that history is all material that's written written in records. It is lopsided. You get an elite view of history written by elite classes that were literate. You don't get a complete view of history. So increasingly now, to understand something that resembles the truth, something that resembles the overall picture, you need to look at the records, which is one part of the puzzle. You need to look at art. You need to look at architecture. You need to look at literature.
2: Right. So now that you've, you know, told us about the rigorous research that you do, how do you, you know, retain all of that, Manu? Like we have really poor memories and we really want to know how do you retain it? Like seriously.
1: The thing is, I don't look at it through dates and events. It's more, you know, what is history at the end of the day? The way we are taught, it's five battles, five empires, five kings and five other things, you know, five dates, important dates. Uh, But is, I mean, think of who made history. It was men and women. It was human beings who made history. So history is also their stories. It is also human experience. You start looking at history not necessarily as an affair featuring dates, as an affair featuring battles and kings and empires, but start looking at it as human stories. And human beings always connect with other human beings. Why is it that gossip magazines do so well? Why is it that gossip transmits so well? Because human beings have a natural inborn appetite for the story of other human beings. Which means if you start looking at history through the eyes of the men and women who made history, history comes alive in a completely different way. It becomes something that registers much more comfortably in your brain because there are parallels you can draw with yourself.
2: Absolutely.
0: Like I could connect with the characters and the way you have written
2: it, it's very accessible.
0: I think that's what you do really well in your books is that you make all these characters come alive. And some of the interesting facts that you include are very fascinating for readers. Um, and that brings me to my next question is that, uh, you know, in history, as you said, we're just taught dry dates and we're just taught to memorize uh, the names of kings, rulers, dynasties. So what was your reaction to history in school? And how did you sort of, when did history come alive for you?
1: I sympathize with history textbooks who write textbooks for school children because as I've said before in other, on other platforms, you know, they're given an order from above saying, write a textbook, history of India in 50 pages or 100 pages. How on earth do you encapsulate so many thousands of years with so many layers and so many complexities and so many stories into 50 or 100 pages? You reduce it to the dry bones, you reduce it to these five dates and you're like, okay, fine, this is Indian history, which is why kids don't develop an interest in, in Indian history. In my case, it was... Originally, I think, a sort of jolt I got between what I was seeing in my textbook and what I was hearing from my own family. So in I grew up in Pune, which is, you know, in Maharashtra. And we'd, uh, in our history textbooks, there were these chapters about how widow remarriage was this great social reform, a wonderful, amazing thing, etc. And then during the summers, we'd go to Kerala. And, you know, I discovered that in the 1880s, I had a great-great-grandmother who was a divorcee and twice married.
2: Oh, so wow. widowhood
1: for her was not a concept. And then I realized that widowhood was something that affected only a microscopic fraction of uh, society. The Brahmins and a few upper caste groups for matrilineal manjali. My great-great-grandmother was this chaste woman in Sanskrit and she had her prayers and all of that. But she had two husbands because that was the morality there. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's like mind-blowing. perfectly normal. Perfectly normal over there. That got me thinking Saying why is it that I'm learning one thing here Whereas here I'm seeing In my own family Something completely different There are all these women Who mean far from being You know Afflicted widows There's a great-great-great-grandmother Who sort of tamed an elephant And was a rather furious oh, wow. She had a rather furious Whoa. temper There was this great love story With this Her daughter My great-great-grandmother uh, My great-great-grandfather Was also once married before He abandoned his first wife and son When he saw my great-great-grandmother And thought he wanted her property <laughs> And she was beautiful through these stories, their kids again, you know, all of them, the oldest uh, son had four marriages and each of them ended very easily. Uh, You know, all you had to do was send the lady back to her house and that was it. Wow. And the woman had equal uh, right to sort of terminate a marriage. That's why I suppose there is a historical link to the fact that Kerala still has India's highest divorce rate because culturally women don't necessarily take Uh, rubbish from their husbands. There isn't that much of a taboo attached to uh, breaking up a marriage and moving on because there are historical links and there is a a, a tradition that way. So learning about this at the age of 12 or 13, for example, really got me interested in understanding these stories. So it started with the stories of my own family, my own ancestors. That led me to the history of the region. That led me to the history of Travancore, which was the overall princely state in which my family and my ancestors lived. And that led to the first book. The Ivory Throne.
2: Oh, we just loved listening to, you know, stories like about your family and the way you discovered, you know, these alternate narratives. So we were curious whether, you know, you had readers or writers in the family because like, you know, when was your first exposure to books? Was it in school? Was it through family?
1: My maternal, so this is the irony, my paternal grandfather, my father came from a very poor family. My paternal grandfather was illiterate. In a 99% literate state, he was an illiterate farmer. Wow. And my father had to really struggle to get out. And then I was born when he was 40. So I never knew all of this. He's pretty established when I was born. But we always heard stories of how he had to sit under a street lamp and study and things like that. Mother's side was slightly different because mother's father was a big reader and he used to, and he spoke, you know, clipped English and he'd been abroad and things like that. So he would give us another exposure. So for me, on my father's side, you know, I have cousins who are rickshawwallas, who are are electricians, things like that. You're exposed to a ground reality that is very interesting. For a writer, it's really magnificent to be able to observe that side, you know, in your own family. And on the other side, you have a slightly more elite sort of establishment.
2: It's like the best of both worlds, I would say. Yeah, I mean,
1: I I, I think I'm grateful in a way but that I'm Therefore, I don't take my privilege, for example, too lightly, because I've seen my own first cousins who live a very different life. Who... And
0: you have insight into lives of various people.
1: And you don't, therefore, take anything you get for granted. People make a big hoo-ha about, uh, I mean, lately they've been making a big hoo-ha about, you also said, three books before 30 or something. And the we thing were going to
0: ask you that. <laughs> but that's
1: the thing, right? My father, apparently, after he passed away, one of my cousins came and he said, you have no idea when your father was 16, 17, they, they, those people had a shop there and all the all the goods came wrapped up in newspapers and he couldn't afford newspapers so he would go there pull off the the packaging paper flatten that out on the floor and read that in order to get the news and this was outdated news you know months old sometimes which is why, you know, I'm not going to, when people say three books, it's because, you know, my grandfather was illiterate. My father was had to read like that. So I'm obviously not going to squander an opportunity to sit and, and, and do the writing, which I have the privilege and the capacity to do. Becoming a full-time writer is not uh, easy, but, you know, it, I've created a, a position for myself. So I'm not going to let time go waste because there are other people before me have, in that sense, suffered.
2: It's so great that you're self-aware Of that, yeah. Like a lot of people are not quite aware of the privileges that they have.
0: Yeah. And what what a rich history you have within your family. It's very, very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think everybody's families, you know, start looking at your own grandparents, for example. We are almost conditioned to think of people as grandmother, grandfather, mother, father. But they're also individuals in their own right. They're also people who had their own stories. Because we ascribe these family relations and we expect them to behave in a certain way, we sometimes blind ourselves to the fact that they had very human feelings as well. Uh, you know so my mother was once very scandalised when I said have you ever had an affair because I just wanted to know <laughs> out of curiosity and she said these are hardly conversations you open with your mother over, over tea but anyway so no you know. but
2: actually it's interesting because even I like ask such questions to my parents and I think now they're used to it because yeah. they're like I think writers just ask such weird questions yeah we, <laughs> we love the gossip
1: you, no you're yeah. interested in character you're interested in the humanity stories. you're interested yeah. in human beings
2: like what are you that not what, telling me <laughs> correct
1: and you know we draw. A moral judgment from history, from life in general, life becomes a much richer place.
0: So coming back to the three books before 30, we had to ask. Um, you know, it is a considerable feat given the amount of research that you've done in these books. So what is your writing routine like?
1: You know, I must sort of qualify this with something, which is that each book is sort of tailored with different, a uh, different style to begin with in terms of the writing the first book is 700 pages much more in depth it moves more slowly etc the third book is far more racy and no essays more than 4-5 or five pages it's considerably lighter than my earlier book yeah. so you know the the amount of time it takes to write each also therefore varies the first one took 6 years to write the second oh, wow. one was essays written over two and a half, three years so you know the the nature of research for each of these varies because the first one was 6 years it was me immersed in archives in 3 continents you know in America in, in London and in India and you know, of course, in the in the third book, it's a collection of essays. So it's, a lot of it is from secondary sources. You know, these are not stories I go in depth into. I just identify the best texts academically that exist and sort of bridge that with a mass audience. Some material in even in the third book is archival. So the uh, the sections on Savarkar, for example, the two essays that I found in the archives. These this is curious funny little essay he once wrote about how the king of Nepal should be the emperor of India. I found that in in, in London, uh, when he jumps off a ship in Marseille and tries to escape all the archival material and the and the arbitration that took place in the international courts in The Hague, all of that is again archival material. Some is Telugu literature, which I can't read Telugu, I can do Marathi, Malayalam, Hindi, but I can't do Telugu. So there I rely on uh, very good translations by the senior move scholars in that field. Uh, so, you know, research, therefore, uh, entails depending on the nature of the book. So now my fourth book, which I haven't started writing, so I shouldn't probably be talking about it. <laughs> but that, again, goes back to the first book in terms of size and ambition and oh, scale. Wow. Okay. Uh, because, you know, that's... Yeah. In a sense, you have to keep sort of testing your own capacity. If you fall into a routine of a single style, a single format, uh, a single, you know, tone even, your eventually your writing starts suffering. The idea is to keep sort of trying, I don't know, various varieties of writing... And forms of writing and tone itself so that you know you also keep evolving over the years.
2: We wish you best of luck with your uh, project. So is Thank it you. is it fiction? I think you mentioned somewhere no, fiction that fiction
1: not before 2024. There's a there's a, there's a story in my head that's a very, very interesting story and it's set in a very fascinating sort of context, but I, I don't think it's time yet. It'll it'll come when it comes. I'm not in a hurry. Right now I'm you know pretty content doing non-fiction. The books have been very well received. And one thing that really makes me proud is not only, I mean, they've done very well commercially, but they've also been received very well in the press, uh, you know. Critically, Yeah, we've read But also my second book, for example, was also peer-reviewed very favorably, which doesn't usually happen with popular history. Because what happens is I have a foot in academia as well. I'm doing my PhD, so I'm, you know, involved with the world of the seminars and so on. And I know that a lot of my colleagues sort of frown on me for doing popular history. Be like, no, no This is not what you should do, you know, let the masses sort of rise to the level <laughs> of intelligence rather than you trying to simplify things for the masses, etc. But the point is, it's not simplifying. It's simply using attractive language to explain complicated ideas and explain interesting characters without sort of, you know, you're not simplifying it. That That I think is too simplistic a statement. You're simply making it more accessible. And I think that is a challenge worth taking up. And that I think I want to keep doing.
0: So, are you at liberty to discuss what the fourth book is about?
1: I'm slightly superstitious, which is that, you know, till something is done, I should never talk about it. Fair enough. Because, you know, so why why sort of yeah, count your chicken before the eggs have hatched, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, when the time is right, probably 2021.
0: We read that, uh, Michelle mentioned, we read that uh, you first started writing uh, with fiction. Yeah. So now that, uh, you know, you're so immersed in uh, your nonfiction projects, do you sometimes write fiction on the side?
1: I do. I mean, so this, this novel I mentioned, you know, there are bits and pieces that I've already written. You know, you get an idea, you want to put it down on paper. It might not be great in that particular first draft, but it's there so that I don't forget. I can come back to it, revisit it, uh, you know, improve it, etc. So when a f- uh, an idea or a notion comes, you immediately put it down. Uh, But right now is not when I'm actually going into that as a as a full time uh, plan. That will come 2024, as I said.
0: Yeah, and we are waiting to read it.
2: and you know what you mentioned earlier about it being accessible I think like you make an effort to you know bring a live history to the common reader so I was telling Tara about how you know I hated maths in school but then the way the teacher you know it all depends on the way the teacher teaches it so I think as a writer you do like you know uh, I think take it quite seriously to make it quite simple to the audience which I think is brilliant
1: and you know that's why if you look at the books not the third one because it's essays and I've only given sources but the first two books are extremely rich with footnotes and lots of material in the notes alone. The idea is that in so you've read the accessible well written whatever that section you've read the story as it were but then if you're interested in a more academic sense into actually going into one or two facets of this in great detail everything is footnoted. Everything has, you know, annotations that are really going to guide you to, you know, uh, picking up those academic books or picking going directly into the primary sources, into the archives where I found the material so that you yourself can develop your interest. That is the idea also. It's not light in the sense that, as I said, you don't compromise ever on the research. So I'm in a way proud that the first book has 104 pages of notes because, you know, it, wow. yeah. that is a contribution in its own right. Putting that much archival uh, material in one place uh, is, you know, it, it, to me, it, it's an interesting uh, way of doing it which is the prose is is accessible, but the sources are still maintained in a very academic sense.
0: And yeah. I, I really like the way that you include humor in, uh, in your books. Uh, what was the line? That, yeah, uh, so there's a line in your uh, current book where
2: uh, Anadurai, I think, mentions like, uh, you know, he says that, oh, then the national word of India should oh, this be... this is when
1: Gandhiji says the yes. national language should be Hindi because uh, Hindi is sp- spoken by a majority.
2: Yes, and he says how the national bird then should be the, uh, you know, the crow not the peacock. Yeah, like
1: By that logic. Yeah.
2: yeah, so it was really funny. So, like, we wanted to know, like, how do you, like, you know, uh, do you consciously add a humorous tone or, like, you know, so do that you, you
0: neutralize facts like that. The so yeah. thing is, you know,
1: there is plenty of humor in the past. The past is not a humorless uh, sort of horizon. There's lots of humor. There are people who are just, you take a, a character like Jahangir. Parvati Sharma has done a wonderful biography of Jahangir. And you'd think normally a Mughal emperor sitting on his peacock throne, giving out decrees and orders, etc. Jahangir was a man of in intense curiosity you know once uh, the English ambassador got him two dogs and he was so impressed with these dogs far from letting them run around in court he had palanquins assigned to these dogs my and God. men would walk around with fly whisks and escorting <laughs> these dogs in palanquins around the court eccentric man. another time someone brought him a zebra as a present and he was convinced the zebra was a horse with paint on it so oh he decides to wash He in court he wants the, horse, the zebra washed 20 times to see if the pain, paint will wear off only when the zebra refuses to change colours does he say, Okay, fine, this is a different animal. It's not a painted horse. Oh my god,
0: yeah. that's so funny. You'll yeah. never forget facts and like
1: that. He's he's traveling at one time and he sees a, a snake eating a rabbit or something. And he stops his entire sort of retinue and entourage and he says, Let's watch this. And of course the snake is suddenly bewildered at being watched by five hundred people. So it stops eating the rabbit. And Jahangir says, No, stuff the rabbit into the snake's mouth. I want to see how this happens. And I think both animals end up dying in the process. So, you know. And he he, he maintained a diary. Uh, you know, he's written a diary which is oh, wow. sparkling with wit and humor and eccentricity. So
0: where can lay people get access to it? It's called the
1: Jahangir Nama. It's been translated into uh, into English. Even, I mean, read the Babar Nama. Babur Nama is even more honest. At one point, I think Babar discusses his love for this sort of teenage boy he sees in a market somewhere. And he becomes obsessed with this boy that he's met. There's great candor. There is frankness. These are human beings.
2: Yeah. So it's really, uh, you know, uh, brave of you, Manu that you are uh, quite liberal in your tone. And I think it comes naturally to you, like, you know, to bring women in the front in all your stories. So, like, we were wondering if you had any fear of backlash, you know, from the extremists.
0: And if there has been backlash, how have you dealt with it?
1: Yeah, There's, I mean, there are different stages. So, for example, there's plenty of trolling on Twitter that happens. But the thing is, I never engage. There are some people who sort of enjoy that sort of attention and they will sort of reply back in sort of sardonic words, you know, very direct blunt words, etc. But I think that is damaging because trolls essentially want attention. If you keep responding to that, a it just clouds you in under a lot of negativity, but also gives them the attention they want. So my policy is simple, don't respond. The fact is, are these people ever going to go and pick up a book and read? No, they're not. So they're not even my audience. You know, my audience is still going to go and pick up and read a book, because a book reading audience is not a trolling audience. So why should I waste my energy on critics who are not readers? You know, you're trying to convince people who are readers. You're trying to bring more people into reading, focus on them. That's such a more constructive thing to do. Uh, in other ways, you know, I've even been sent a defamation notice. Once. Oh, my God. But, you know, you don't, you don't buckle under this sort of pressure for the simple reason that, you know, if you're not going to defend your work, who else is? Plus, because I'm very solid, I, I mean, I say it sounds immodest, but because I'm solid with my research... You can't really scare me like that mm, because everything is footnoted. Yeah. You say, "How could you? How dare you say this?" I was like, <laughs> right. well, "Hold on, I am not saying it. This particular document here, or this particular reference here, is what is saying it. So go sue whoever wrote that, not me." <laughs> so you know You just need True. to be A little balanced Not get carried away Either with praise Or with the negativity And then you, you know, sort of manage A balanced mind yeah. yeah
0: So what kind of response Have your books Gotten from audiences Do you think younger people Are picking up your books
1: I think they are Because you know uh, Again with the first book That's now Three and a half years old so that book, 700 pages, and we're in, I think, 16th print. And it's oh, sold wow. well wow. over 33,000 copies or Congrats. something like that in three That's years. Which is by yeah. Indian standards, you know, uh, this is a very it's small huge. market. Uh, Some of the biggest writers don't sell more than 50,000, 60,000 copies. For me, it's not the numbers. What is interesting is that I was a non-entity, a completely unknown writer when the book came out. The subject, Travancore, was unheard of. My protagonist was unheard of. The book was 700 pages. On the face of it, everything was against the book. You know, who's going to go and pick up a book about an obscure character by an obscure writer that is ultra heavy? But the very fact that people did and that it became a commercial success was, I think, for me enough proof that people are picking up books and people are reading, and often these are very young people. It's not, uh, you know, the old reader. Everywhere I go, my my most active social media platform is my Instagram. <laughs> who's on Instagram? Much younger yeah. people. Because you know, I think it's that's
0: quite heartening to hear. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not yeah. pessimistic. There are yeah.
1: people who say reading is fading, etc. It's rubbish. <laughs> I and mean, Indian publishing is booming. There's yeah,
0: exactly. And
1: Indian non-fiction is booming. Fiction is much more competitive but non-fiction is really building up in this country
2: yeah actually we wanted to ask you because when you started out you were quite young so you know what were the challenges you faced like when you were you know pitching your work to publishers
1: okay so this again you know my ex-boss in the house of lords had this saying where he said success is where hard work meets, meets good luck because luck plays a big big role in these things and you should never underestimate Absolutely. That. you can never take all the credit for these things because sometimes it's just sheer timing or sheer luck So one of the reasons, for example, for the success of my first book is also that nobody had written a book set in Kerala for many decades, an accessible book like that. So now anytime you go on Amazon or Flipkart or whatever, you search for a Kerala book, the first thing that pops up is is mine. So it's filled a space, which was purely a matter of timing. You know, if someone else had done a Kerala book around then, I wouldn't have had that sort of... Cornering of that space, so timing plays a big role. Luck also plays a big role. I sent, you know, I realized that the only person I ever emailed was the editor at HarperCollins, who published the book.
0: And that was Kaartika. a cold call.
1: Yeah, out of the blue. So what I did was, uh, I knew I assumed that as an editor and as the, you know, the senior editor in that uh, in that company, she's probably being bombarded with manuscripts daily. So I said, look, I'm just going to send her six pages, this opening six pages of the book. I wrote a sort of, you know, consciously well-crafted email. And most uh, interestingly, I think I sent it at two o'clock in the morning so that when she woke up in the morning, oh, it would be top smart of her inbox.
2: Strategic, yeah. So
1: I then went to bed around three or something and woke up around 10, 10, 30, And she had already replied by then. And she wow. said, I like these six pages. Send me the manuscript. And, you know, and when you're a first writer, you also keep your uh, sort of expectations realistic. So I wasn't expecting the moon or whatever. It was very sort of sober minded. I said, look, my only condition is they should be published within a year, within 11 months. And she agreed to that. And I said, everything else is, you know, debate uh, is negotiable. I don't, I'm not
0: That's amazing. Uh, yeah.
1: caught up on these nitty gritties because the idea is to get that first book published by a publisher who has distribution strength, who has brand value. And then, you know, it becomes easier after that. And it does become easier after that.
0: Right. How do you think success has changed you or has it? Because I mean, your first book, like, is doing so well, yeah. And it's going to
2: be
1: the adapted also. Yeah. The, the only uh, thing I would say is that because it's done well and because the second one did well, now the third one's done well as well, the idea is it gives you greater confidence to invest in your own plan to become a full-time writer. So as of 2017, I've stopped working full-time. I gave up my job in, in Parliament. Of course, I've got my PhD going on in London, so that is in its own way a job. But the idea of becoming a full-time author is now, you know, it's not some sort of pipe dream. It's, it's possible because, of course, you can never get too complacent because, you know, you may have three successes and the fourth one may be flopping. So, you know, the thing is, you can't ever rest and think that, you know, now you're sort of set.
2: Hmm. You just have
1: to plan well. You just have to invest whatever money you make well so that, you know, you're sort of secure. And once that basic security comes, you know, your life becomes slightly more easy. So I think success has only simply given me a sense of confidence about uh, pursuing what I want to do. With uh, less, uh, you know, concerns than earlier
0: right Looking. and
2: going yeah. yeah yeah. and do you think the mindset is changing in India because like you know we were talking the other day of how writing is still considered a hobby and it's very difficult for people to accept it like when they ask you what you do when you say you write they say no what do you actually do yeah. like do you face
1: that kind of not anymore I think now that you know the books have done well <laughs> and some awards etc have come my way etc right. etc so there's now people take it a little more seriously but still you get the odd email including one two days ago saying oh we're releasing this collection of something will you contribute an essay and I was like no this is my bread and butter like you yeah. pay me I will write for you but I'm not for going sure, to yeah. f- exactly. contribute free stuff That's those days are gone I, you know the whole idea in fact there's this big movement against you know young writers etc being exploited saying oh we'll give you exposure and <laughs> yeah. you write for free I'm sorry the world doesn't work like that if you do anything for free then, it's you your know, label you're always at the, end of the day, yeah. true it's not an easy choice to make. Sometimes yeah. strategically, perhaps you may have to do something free because strategically the the advantages sort of are greater than the money you might get paid. There, perhaps it's fine. But any random place, you can't simply start doing things for free.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we had a bit of a rapid fire. That sounds uh, ominous. Yes, but no, it's all related to writing. So <laughs> do you want to begin?
2: Yeah, so um, we want to know like when you just want to switch off from the creative process and just like chill. So what do you do then?
1: I travel I think that's what happens yeah but usually the travel also ends up with writing so recently I went to Baroda to look at the art collection at the the Baroda Palace and at the palace itself. And my God, it's so striking. The palace is striking. They, they've got this Murano glass uh, mosaics there with some wonderful like murals that have been made out of that. The floors, you know, there's so many stories that I've decided I want to do an essay on it because oh, wow. there's no escaping it. But, but and, you know, It and you
0: everywhere.
1: Yeah, and then my flight was out from Ahmedabad. So I had to drive down two hours and I on the way I realized there's a stepwell in Ahmedabad that's that, very yeah, famous. You know, Adalaj. So I I said, look, I don't have enough time before the airport. So I made a quick dash, spent 10 minutes there, quickly went around and then zoomed back to the airport and and went. But, you know, that sort of thing excites me. Travelling and sort of seeing places.
2: I think it recharges you like for the next.
1: And in fact, I used to do that during my research cycles, which is in London, the, the last research cycle I had. So you work, say, six, six, six weeks, where you're doing 10 hours a day in the library. But then I would take one week off and travel. So I'd go somewhere in Europe or come wow. somewhere in India. There'd Amazing. be a conference or something. Around that, I'd do something. And I, when I travel, I don't take my laptop. I don't take uh, work with me. The phone's there. So your basic urgent stuff is done. But uh, yeah, you know, the travel sort of lightens the mind. This is not very rapid.
0: Which, uh, <laughs> okay, so where do you write? And are there any particular places that you write at?
1: No, not really. I'm not very romantic about these things. When I was doing my first book, I had this thing where... I moved to Goa for about three months thinking "Oh, I will sit in Goa and write etc it was rubbish it was a disaster because all I was doing was dealing with the landlord chasing the maid doing the groceries and I was like please I'm an idiot so then I moved back with my parents and then of course there it was much more easy the food came to me I didn't have to lift a finger I could only sit down and write (laughs)
2: like a residency (laughs) for. they would disappear (laughs) during the day
1: and come back in the evening so I had the house to myself all day that was perfect I I don't know why I didn't think of that earlier but I don't have a space I'm not very attached to physical spaces I don't have a desk as such that I prefer Uh, so long as it's a silent room I can write anywhere
0: oh that's very flexible yeah interesting Mm -hmm. okay so do you listen to music while writing no no Okay, so like, which are the top three
2: books that just, if anyone asks you, please recommend like three books to us, which would they be?
1: I would always recommend P.G. Woodhouse because it sort of nice, brightened yeah. up my, my childhood. And, you know, you mentioned humor earlier and that some of that, that tone that I adopt in my history writing, which that sense of irreverence, I think it is strongly oh, influenced that's by that's where Woodhouse. it
2: comes from. <laughs> from
1: fiction, you know, ironically, but yeah, that's where it comes from. Uh, who are the other, you said three, right? Yes, <laughs> It's difficult to choose. You know, I'm not somebody who ha- who keeps favourites or lists like that.
2: Okay, so any um, recently that you read that you really liked?
1: I liked Amrita Mahale's Milk teas. Oh, we this read was a that. Yeah, novel. we
0: really enjoyed yeah, that. And we loved it. Yeah. I
1: loved it for one principal reason, which is that this is a time when increasingly a lot of writers of fiction feel like they must be the voice of this generation, sort of there's this there's a sword hanging over your head that you have to somehow like communicate this this I am I encapsulate this generation's angst and all of that. She doesn't do any of that. She tells she takes a story and she tells it remarkably well. And I think that was so refreshing to read that. And it, it covers a period which also coincided with my childhood. So there was that nostalgia value. There was also the idea that this was a story that was told really well. And I really enjoyed that book for that reason.
0: Yeah.
2: Yes, I think talking about the nostalgia, like we had a question, like, are you planning a contemporary book anytime? Like, for me, I think the 1990s was such a fascinating period, you know, with the change in technology, and we have seen it. So are you planning to anytime write about the 1990s?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't see anything at the moment, you don't know in the future, because my next two, three projects, I have a sense in my head of what I want to do. Uh, the next one's definitely history. After that, there may be one more and then the novel, but as of now, novel may take precedence, and then I'll go back to history. But Let's see. Uh, there's, there's no contemporary book planned. Not not at the moment.
0: Cool. Yeah, interesting. Also, yeah. the
1: contemporary at the moment is pretty ugly. I don't want to talk about it.
0: <laughs> so your column is still... Uh, it's, still it's still happening.
1: It's, it's been still... three years.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah. It's a
1: weekly column for three years. <laughs> That's yeah. a little yeah. bit of a challenge. Yeah. Because so for me, it's a, it's a double issue, right? Which is that I can't use anything for the column, which conf- which is meant for my book, because then I'll end up repeating myself. So I have to find something each week that is not connected to my Keep book. Keep
0: finding something new still, all the yeah, time. Still yeah, still new and
1: interesting. So there's that.
0: Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. but that's amazing. So you're yeah. finding new things to write about, uh, working on right. your current projects. Um, that's then... what, no, it,
1: it goes back to what I said earlier, right? Which is that when you choose to become a full-time writer, you really can't squander any of mm. your time you know there are so many uncertainties in future right now the running is good you know right now things are going well but in future you can never guarantee it so when you have the opportunity when the world is giving you attention mm-hmm. Instead of sort of merely basking in the in the glory and the sunlight, you sort of make the most of it. You don't drop the ball at that time. Yeah. I you really like that philosophy. Yeah.
2: yeah, and I think our listeners can just like I think learn a lot like from this because you sound very mature and self-aware of
0: everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also very humble. So yeah. no, I think
1: hard working is, <laughs> yeah, the, is hard-working, the general hard. principle yeah. for life because yeah. you know you don't know till when you can do it. You don't know when you'll get hit by a bus or something. So yeah. you know whatever. Let's just do what we and can. You why we can? And if have the
0: privilege of doing what yeah. you enjoy and doing not? well, yes. it is. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Thank yeah. you so much for being here. Thank you for very having interesting, me. And very interesting. I look forward for to that. hearing
1: this online now.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: It was great talking to you, Manu. Thank, Thank you. you. I love finding out about his family, Tara. Especially how he doesn't take his privilege for
0: granted, and he's so hardworking. It was a great conversation and I'm super excited for our next guest. I can't believe we're going to be talking to Lisa Ray. I'm a big fan. We both are and her book is one of the best memoirs that we've ever read. So we're really excited to find out more about Lisa Ray, the writer. Hope you guys
2: enjoyed our conversation. And if you have any feedback, please do reach out to us. We are at Bound India on Facebook, Insta and Twitter.